Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Fun Factory. Written and read by Chris England. Chapter 12. The Nutty Burglars. So began one of the happiest periods of my life. Tilly and I travelled down to Seattle with little Wallace, who loved the train and seemed almost hypnotised by the scenery flying past the window. I sat him on my knee for some of the journey, still feeling a little awkward and apprehensive about suddenly becoming a family man. At one point, the little fellow suddenly went bright purple, which alarmed me greatly, having no medical skills whatsoever to call upon. Tilly was calm, however, and within a few moments Wallace himself seemed a lot more comfortable, and, I might add, sitting about an inch and a half taller. A sudden blast of a quite desperate stench revealed exactly what had been occurring, and Tilly carted the boy off to clean him up. I was left behind to look out of the window, relieved that she was such a dab hand at that kind of thing, but becoming aware that there were skills I was going to have to learn, and jolly quick smart too. Stan and Freddy were thrilled to see Tilly again, and were both a lot more at ease with the baby than I was, at least to begin with. They'd both had younger brothers when they were growing up, and were happy to pitch in and become honorary uncles. Stan had a little trick, where he would pop his finger into his own mouth and puff out his cheeks, which made his hat rise up above his head. Wallace never tired of seeing this, gurgling away happily, and Stan would happily repeat it over and over again. After all, a laugh was a laugh. The Considine organisation, all those busy little bees with their pinboard maps and their thrown-together bills, had come up with some bookings for the Nutty Burglars starting the following week, so we began rehearsing right away, putting together the act we had promised was ready. Fortunately, Stan was a marvel at this, as I remembered from the time the two of us assembled the Rummans from Rome back in London a couple of years earlier. Give Stan a set-up, and gags just spilled out of him. If we laughed, which we did often and long, then the gags stayed in. He and Tilly had a great rapport as the lead burglar and the flirty maid, and Freddy and I were content to let them shine. We began in Seattle, not at the Empress, the vast theatre we had graced as the Carnot Company, but at the Alhambra, a far more modest little 220-seater some way out from the centre of the city. The Nutty Burglars was ready that first night, or at least as ready as we could make it, without finding out which bits an audience was going to laugh at, but our patron, John Considine, had promised to come and see it debut, so there were plenty of nerves as our first performance drew closer. Our slot was midway through the second half, and the house was becoming somewhat raucous. Clearly there had been drink taken, plenty of it, and people had progressed to the point where the most fun they could derive from some of the distinctly average acts that were parading before them lay in loudly abusing them until they stopped. As a particularly execrable banjo player departed the stage earlier than anticipated, all of a sudden it was our turn. The four of us took a deep breath and silently placed our hands one on top of the other, the four now musketeers. Then the lights came back up and Stan and I tiptoed on stage, two burglars breaking into a big house. We were making a big play of being as quiet as we could, of course, and so the first sequence was all pantomime, no words. 
the audience piped down and began to pay attention to what we were doing. And it's far easier to heckle someone if they are trying to speak to you, or sing to you in the case of our unfortunate banjo-mangling predecessor, than it is if they are attempting to entertain you in silence. By the time Tilly entered as the maid, the crowd was under our spell, and she was able to show the light that had been hidden under a bushel during her whole Carno career. She was terrific. She and Stan sparked off one another as if we'd been doing the act for years, and it was all I could do to keep a straight face as the third wheel. When we finished chucking the fizzing bomb from hand to hand, and Freddy appeared with his explosion-blackened face, the cheers were long and loud. We were thrilled, and so full of adrenaline that we could have gone straight out on stage and done it all over again. The second house wasn't for a couple of hours, though, which gave us time to come down to earth. Which we did. We sat in the green room, waiting anxiously for John Considine to come round and deliver his verdict, hoping that he would confirm that the act had a future on the Sullivan and Considine time. But he was a no-show, which put a dent in our mood somewhat. He didn't like it, obviously, Freddy muttered into his cup of tea. He can't face us. Nonsense, I said. How could he not like it? We got laughs, didn't we? He's management, Freddy put in gloomily. He could like it well enough, but just not see any money in it. Considine didn't appear after the second house either, and by the end of the evening I'd been nominated to call in at the offices the next day to ask him face to face. After all, we were on friendly terms, and we needed reassurance as a group that we hadn't simply been forgotten. So the following morning, after very little by way of sleep, I took myself over to Considine's headquarters and asked to see the boss. "'I'm sorry, Mr Considine left for New York the day before yesterday,' the receptionist said. "'It was terribly sudden.' "'Well,' He hadn't been at the Alhambra then. Evidently there was an emergency of some kind elsewhere in Considine's comedy kingdom. Looking back, it may well have been a minor tremor, foreshadowing the earthquake to come. Hmm, I see, I said thoughtfully, as I sidled over to take a sneaky look at the typed bill sheets tacked to the wall to see if I could pick up a hint of how things actually stood for the nutty burglars. Mind if I... Knock yourself out, the receptionist said. A chill crept slowly down my spine as I failed to spot a single mention anywhere. The receptionist noticed my dismay and gave a long-suffering sigh. "'What are you looking for?' "'The nutty burglars,' I said. "'The nutty buglers. So it's a musical term. "'No, not buglers. Burglars. We do a sketch in which we burgle. Nutterly.' "'Hmm.' She began to shake her head. "'No nutty burglars that I can see. Are you sure that's the name of the act, or is it just the sketch?' "'Oh, that was a point. What had Stan decided we were to be called?' I had it suddenly and snapped my fingers. The four comiques. Are you French? You don't sound French. I'm not, no, we aren't. We just have a French name. Why? I had to be frank. I really don't know. The receptionist gave me a long look and turned back to the pinboards, muttering under her breath. Suddenly I spotted the four comiques on one of the lists pinned up there. A red thread was pinned connecting our name to the city of Seattle on the map, where a cluster of pins suggested dozens of turns playing a fistful of theatres. "'There we are!' I cried. "'What does this mean?' She peered at where I was pointing and translated the pins for me. "'Hmm. Seattle for the next three weeks, then Portland for four, then Tacoma and Spokane,' she said. "'Splendid,' I said. "'Well, then, I shall get out of your hair and return when Mr Considine is back in town.' "'As you please,' she said, easing herself back in behind her desk. I hurried back to my friends with the good news. Bookings for weeks ahead, and not too much travelling either over the next few weeks and months.' Of course, the theatres weren't exactly what we'd become used to when we were working for Carno. This was small-time vaudeville, whereas before we'd been just one step down from the really big time. The very biggest vaudeville theatres in most of the towns we played in would be the Codsodine Empresses and the rival Pantages venues. 
in the orbit of these suns, if you will, were any number of smaller satellite theatres offering small-time vaudeville three or four times a day, and many of these were also owned by the Considine organisation, or by King Greek, or by other smaller-time entrepreneurs who had a booking arrangement with one or other of the two giants. And it was in these smaller theatres that the four comiques plied our trade. Not Carnot venues, and not Carnot money either, let me tell you that. But not being billed and identified as the Carnot company, nobody knew we were English, which we began to enjoy. An English accent is a fine thing to have in American vaudeville, broadly speaking. But in some of the smaller theatres, it wasn't such a boon as all that. It made us sound stuck up, like we felt we were better than our audience, even though we didn't think that particularly. And we found that affecting a nondescript American accent on stage took the edge off somehow, allowed us to simply be funny. So that is what we did. And strangely, what we were doing felt a little more honest somehow. We'd been used to riding into towns and topping the bills in the biggest theatres, but it wasn't a notoriety that we had earned for ourselves. No, it was the Fred Carno name that was responsible, and we were mere cogs in a machine that would trundle along just as happily without us. Now, though, with the nutty burglars, we were making a name for ourselves on our own merits, and it felt good, it felt noble, it felt... better. Along the way... Wallace took his first steps in a public park in Tacoma, where we were having a picnic lunch before three shows at a murky little theatre there, and ventured his first word, which was, Dada! Not, I hasten to add, a sign of affection for his father, but rather an impersonation of Stan's final flourish after the bowler hat gag. We fell into the habit of booking ourselves into digs as a married couple, Tilly and I, which we enjoyed greatly. Partly this was because it reminded us of the first flush of our romance some years before, when Freddie had been under the impression that we were married and had booked us into married digs. That period, of course, had come to a juddering halt when Charlie found out about it and shopped us to the number one, who was his elder brother, Sid. Tilly had been obliged to leave the company then and we'd not seen each other for more than a year. I still hadn't forgiven Charlie for that little shenanigan, by the way, although Tilly still refused to believe he'd meant anything malicious by it. We enjoyed posing as married, too, because we often found ourselves in the care of landladies whose maternal instincts were very well developed. Sometimes their own children had grown up and flown the nest. Sometimes they had never been blessed themselves, but had never lost the yearning. Whichever, Wallace was a charmer, and more than once we found that our hostess would be happy to sit with him in the evenings when we were working, would even put him to bed, so we could stay out for a quick beer or three afterwards, if we were really lucky. When a doting landlady was not available as an option, we would have to take the little chap with us to the theatre. Now sometimes there would be other acts on the bill who would happily keep an eye on the little rogue for the twenty minutes or so that we needed to be on stage. A few times, however, Tilly was thrown by hearing him wail right at the very edge of the range of her hearing during the middle of our turn. Then, on one occasion, in Chicago, as I recall, we'd left the lad with a couple of busty sisters, dancers, who were doting on his chubby cheeks as we made our way up to the wings. Freddy muttered as we climbed the staircase. He knows which side his bread is buttered on Wallace, doesn't he? And indeed he did seem to enjoy the attentions lavished upon him from all sides, particularly by our female colleagues. However, just before the nutty burglars was about to start, we heard a dreadful scream, unmistakably Dandovian in origin, until he flew down the stairs again to calm the baby down. Stan and I grimaced, shrugged at one another, and then began the routine. When the time came for Tilly to make her entrance as the maid, there was a momentary pause, which felt like about five minutes, but was maybe only a dozen heartbeats long, during which Stan and I both imagined how the sketch would go without her. We would just crack the safe, rob the house, and leave, and that would have to be that. Functional? 
Not especially funny, but maybe people would be intrigued. Maybe they'd learn something. Then Tilly rushed out from the wings, flushed and breathless from her gallop up the stairs and holding little Wallace in her arms. Stan blinked as he took this in, and I feared that the little man was going to suddenly start bursting his lungs, but Tilly seemed determined to carry on as though this was perfectly normal, and the sketch proceeded on its merry way. Early in the piece, Tilly was supposed to introduce herself as the maid of the house. "'I'm Gertrude, the... nanny,' she said. Stan simply nodded, and on we went. As for Wallace, he was clearly utterly stage-struck. He realised that there were lots of people watching, maybe a couple of hundred, and that was absolutely fine by him. And here was Stan, who was always worth looking at, and sure enough, he was being funny, so the lad laughed, which made the audience laugh, which just made him laugh even more. The climactic sequence, as I've explained, I think, involved me lighting the fuse on a dummy bomb and the four of us passing it backwards and forwards in increasing alarm. In the midst of this, Tilly suddenly handed me the baby. Whether she meant to do it or not, I couldn't say, and neither could she afterwards. And then there we were, all of us, bomb circulating one way, baby the other. He thought this was a fine old game, of course, and gurgled away happily until Freddy ran outside, the bomb flew out of the window and went off with the most tremendous smoky bang. Freddy reappeared then, having quickly blackened his face with two handfuls of soot and stood his hair on end, whereupon Wallace had had enough surprises and began to wail. This turned out to be the most perfect coda to the performance, and we could not make any of the other acts that night believe that we hadn't trained our little man to within an inch of his life to get him to react so precisely on demand. From that night on, we could always revert to the nanny setup if push came to shove, and no one would look after Wallace, and he actually grew quite accustomed to being on display. Rather liked it, I think. So the four happy comiques travelled all over, cheerfully slogging their way through the back alleyways of small-time vaudeville. We ended up travelling as far as the Great Lakes, and then all the way back out to the West Coast again, where we spent a blissful fortnight in Vancouver. We all stayed at the English Bay Beach, where we were able to hand Wallace over to Aunt Lucia and Uncle Mike Asher in the afternoon, and retrieve him from the burlesque house later, where he would invariably start to cry. He's just tired, Tilly would say to the cooing burlesque girls, who would sigh sympathetically and try to tickle a smile out of the little chap with their giant feathers. I never thought he was tired. I always thought he was complaining at being dragged away from all those sequins. To be honest, Freddy usually had a very similar expression on his face when it was time to leave. One of those Vancouver afternoons, Tilly and I strolled out along the pier together and leaned on the railing looking out over the bay. After a minute or two of companionable silence, I glanced down at her at my shoulder and saw she was beaming from ear to ear. "'What is it?' I said, thinking she'd remembered something funny. "'Oh, nothing,' she said. "'Just... thanks.' "'Thanks? What for?' "'Nothing. Everything. For coming to get me.' "'You're welcome, I'm sure,' I said.' I know it's not a big deal, like it was with Carno, she said, and I know you must miss that. I began to protest, and she held up a finger to my lips. A little. You must miss it a little. But I have to say, I'm having the most marvellous time. As am I, I said, and she hooked her arm in mine and rested her head on my shoulder. And it felt like we'd be perfectly happy just to travel around together, getting laughs with our friends and watching Wallace grow for the next year, the next decade, and on and on into our dotage. The world had other ideas. (laughs) 
Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Chapter 13. Edgar English. Of course, there had to be a fly in the ointment during that sunny spring and summer of 1914. And even then, you know, at first it seemed like a small fly, not one that would prevent you from getting at the ointment. Not a really big, fat, annoying fly, constantly banging its fat, stupid head against the window right next to your ear all day long. Just a little buzzy annoyance. You see, I started to see Charlie Chaplin everywhere. Months had passed since he'd disappeared to California to make moving pictures and signed the death warrant for his comedy career, and I'd almost forgotten about the little swine. Now, though, as we toured around with the Nutty Burglars, we started to run into the new comedies coming out of Keystone Pictures. They were still, as they'd always been, the cue for a large part of the vaudeville audience to get up and use the facilities, but sometimes we'd go to a Nickelodeon just to keep abreast of what was happening. Apart from anything else, the flickers used to hypnotise little Wallace so it would be a good way to get an hour or so of relative peace and quiet. The first time we caught a glimpse of Charlie was in a little movie theatre, which had until recently been a Pantages vaudeville hall in Portland, Oregon. The flicker was called Kid Auto Races at Venice, and was filmed at a racetrack, where little motorised carts were buzzing around in front of a rambunctious crowd of onlookers. What really caught our attention was that there was a camera filming the race, and we could see it up there on the screen, which meant that there must have been two cameras there, and we'd never seen a film of something being filmed before, something in which the camera was actually a character. Then our eyes were taken by a figure strolling out onto the track, clearly aware of the on-screen camera operator, and playing up for him. The carts weaved around this chap in a frankly dangerous fashion, and people started to snigger and gasp. "'Hey, Arthur!' Freddy sang out. "'Look!' "'It's you!' "'What?' I said. "'It's the stowaway. Look!' The figure was teetering from side to side, seemingly drunk, as members of the crowd tried to pull him back to safety. His jacket was tight, a couple of sizes too small, while his trousers were baggy, a couple of sizes too large. His great oversized shoes flapped in the dust, while he twirled a bendy cane, occasionally lifting his battered derby to a passing cart, or twiddling his little toothbrush moustache. It was Chaplin, and of course he was also, as surely as anything... The Stowaway. The Stowaway, I should explain, was a comic creation of my own devising. I had come up with him on one of our Atlantic crossings to entertain my seasick companions, one of whom was, naturally, Mr Charles Spencer Chaplin. I'd grabbed the too small jacket and the too large trousers from the Carnot costume trunk, used a cane that had been given to me by the great George Roby, 
who used a similar one as a staple part of his own on-stage costume, by the way, slapped a derby on my head and a little moustache on my lip, and then had cavorted around in very much the style I was now seeing up on the screen, tormenting two shipboard stewards and evading capture in a slippery fashion, just as Chaplin was doing for the camera at the Venice racetrack. The little... I growled. What? Freddy grinned amiably. It's just a coincidence, surely. Coincidence, my ass! I fumed. That's Chaplin. Goodness me, so it is, Freddy beamed. Hey, Stan, look, it's Charlie. Stan had already recognised our erstwhile number one, and so, it appeared, had Tilly, who was chuckling along with everyone else at the little fellow's antics as he wobbled back into the traffic once again, determined to hog the camera. I vividly remembered then the most recent occasion that I'd brought the stowaway out for inspection. It was when Stan and I accompanied Charlie to the Keystone Studios, and I had easily thrown together a costume very similar to this one that Charlie was now sporting, from bits and pieces that were lying around in the wardrobe room, in the hope of encouraging him to take the plunge by showing him just how easy it was to invent something from scratch. And now here he was, cavorting around in my borrowed weeds, as it were. It's easy to invent something good, I thought. Just wait for someone else to do it, and then pinch it. The audience were now giggling more and more at the show-off's antics, and I glowered stonily at them. Those were my laughs, I thought. There was, however, some small consolation to be had. Afterwards, as we left to head over to our theatre, the four of us squinted at the bill matter, and found that Chaplin was listed as Edgar English. Stan snorted at this. So much for making a name for himself. I don't know why you're getting so worked up about it, Tilly said, handing Wallace to me and taking my arm. It was just a piece of nothing, wasn't it? And it made me laugh. Yes, and as I recall, the stowaway made you laugh too, I retorted, and did so first. Well, she said, I think there was probably just as much of the mummingbird swell in there, if you ask me. Hmm, I grunted. Tilly's right, Stan said, forget about it. Eddie English could have made those little flickers for the rest of his life and not have as much fun as we're going to have tonight. Hear, hear, Freddy cried, waving his boss of the planes in the air. They were right as well. The nutty burglars had a good night and it drove all niggling thoughts of Chaplin out of my mind. Over the next few weeks and months, though, we saw Charlie in more flickers, either in Nickelodeons or sharing a bill with us in small-time vaudeville. Sometimes he would be a version of the character we had first seen, the one he had entirely copied from me, which came to be referred to by the newspapers and on Bill Matter as the Tramp, or sometimes the Little Fellow. There he was, in Mabel's strange predicament, for example, in the same tight coat and baggy trousers, twiddling his moustache, chasing sparky little Mabel Normand from bedroom to bedroom. Then, in a film Johnny, the tramp was hanging around outside the actual Keystone Studios, which I recognised from my visit just six months before. He wheedles his way inside and disrupts the film shoots, causing only marginally more chaos than their everyday norm. In other flickers, though, he was playing different styles of character, which I resented slightly less. In his favourite pastime, for example, he was simply a stock drunk, getting involved in some balletic routines with a beefy fellow I recognised as Roscoe Arbuckle. The papers were still referring to him as Charlie Chapman or Chaz Chatlin, but they were beginning to fall under his spell. Then, in Mabel at the Wheel, he was a stock pantomime villain with a drooping moustache and a range of unfettered histrionics that our old governor would have snorted at in derision, while in an item called Caught in a Cabaret, he was a waiter who masquerades as the ambassador for Greece in a quite incomprehensible story. Nonetheless, some blinkered idiot at the New York Dramatic Mirror opined that it would be unwise to call this the funniest picture that has ever been produced, but it comes mighty close to it. 
Not that I was actually looking for Charlie's reviews or anything. There seemed to be a new Chaplin feature on offer every week then, as we tracked up and down the west coast from Seattle to Frisco and back, and his progress gradually became a background irritation, as Tilly and I enjoyed the experience of being a little working family. I could tell it niggled away at Stan a little, and we would keep having this conversation. You don't think we might have... Stan would begin. Might have what, I'd say. Well, done the wrong thing. Sticking with vaudeville, I mean. What? No, I'd grin. Let him roll around in the dust, see where it gets him. And in truth, I really believed that we had taken the superior path. On stage, Tilly was blossoming, and one night as we lay in bed together, listening to the boys' snores and watching the shadows from the passers-by playing in the streetlights on the ceiling, like a sort of inverted yellow kinescope, Tilly sighed happily. "'You know,' she began, "'when you used to speak about the sensation you referred to as the power, I always used to think you were making it up. Well, not making it up, exactly, but exaggerating. But tonight, do you know, I think I felt exactly the thing you were talking about, for the first time.' It was exhilarating. The power was how I'd come to refer to that feeling I had when the audience is entirely under my spell, when time seems to slow down and I can feel a crowd responding as one docile creature rather than hundreds of disparate souls. It's a heady brew and the thing I love the most about being on stage. I had often wondered whether Charlie Chaplin felt the same way. His approach seemed so technical somehow, as though he would perform his routines in exactly the same way if there was no audience there at all, but I'd certainly felt the power on stage with him on many great nights back in Arcano days together. If he did feel it, that intoxicating dominance, I found it hard to believe that he didn't miss it now, performing only for a camera, for an audience that would only respond to his skills weeks later. It must be taking a bit of getting used to. And now Tilly was getting a taste of the power for herself, which I was thrilled about, even if, to be honest, the nutty burglars, funny though it undoubtedly was, afforded me few opportunities to exercise it myself. Excellent, I said. And you know, I would never have got to feel that working for Carno. You know I wouldn't. No, he's not known for using actresses to their full potential. Not once they've been on his casting couch, anyway. Tilly punched me on the arm and laughed. What I'm trying to say is... I feel like I've finally found what I was meant to do. I'm glad, I said, drawing her close, and especially so that you've decided to do it with me. Dark clouds were gathering, though, in that summer of 1914. In early July, we read in the American papers about the assassination of an archduke in Sarajevo by some Yugoslav nationalist, and how everyone was getting agitated about the possibility of a war between Austro-Hungary and the Kingdom of Serbia. Some voices back home were apparently warning that this situation could escalate into something bigger and nastier that the whole of Europe would ultimately be drawn into. But that's not what I'm talking about. I still used to flick through the pages of Variety, even though the vaudeville venues that the nutty burglars were playing in were far too small to register even on that newspaper's copious listings pages, and around that time I stumbled onto a big article about Charlie which made him sound like just about the biggest thing in the entertainment business. I say stumbled, you could hardly fail to see it. Evidently Max Sennett was releasing all of the Chaplin pictures at once in Britain, with a massive publicity campaign which was headlined, Are You Ready for the Chaplin Boom? never one to downplay his studio's importance, Mac went on to assert as follows, There has never been so instantaneous a hit as that of Chaz Chaplin. At least this one got the name right, well, near enough. 
The five of us were travelling back down to California to play small-time houses in Sacramento and Los Angeles. Stan and Freddy sat opposite the little Dando family in the train carriage, with little Wallace sitting on Tilly's lap making a series of ultimately unsuccessful grabs for her nose. Stan saw my expression and raised an eyebrow quizzically. Without a word, I passed the paper over, and he frowned as he read it, with Freddy peering over his shoulder. "'Well,' Stan breathed. "'I know,' I said. "'Whatever does it say?' Tilly said, as Wallace made another swipe for her conk. Stan handed the paper back to me, and Tilly swung the lad over to Freddy so that she could have a read. All of a sudden, though, we were into the last sequence of our nutty burglars, which just happened to be Wallace's greatest delight. I passed the paper to Tilly, and Freddy passed the baby to Stan, who passed him to me. Naturally, he wanted to go back to his mother now to complete the circuit, so she passed the paper diagonally to Stan, while I fainted to give Wallace back to her, but instead crossed diagonally to Freddy, then switched seats with Stan, taking the paper from him. And on and on it went. The little fellow loved this sort of caper. So it was only when I managed to distract him by pointing out a boat outside the window that Tilly actually got to catch up with what we'd read. Oh, but this is... "'Well, it's astonishing, isn't it?' she said, once she'd taken it in. "'It is that,' I said. "'Charlie certainly seems to be a palpable hit,' Freddy said, with an amiable grin. "'Yes, but it's still only the flickers, isn't it?' I said, "'although the thought of Charlie having such success wasn't sitting well in the pit of my stomach. "'Imagine everyone at home being able to watch him, though. "'That is pretty amazing,' Stan was brooding. "'It's only the flickers.' I said again. They're a novelty, that's all. They'll never stand up against live entertainment, not really. I bet Charlie hasn't heard a laugh, a real live laugh, I mean, since before Christmas. Stan grinned. Yes, and even then it was you cackling at him when he decided to leave Carno. Freddy and I laughed, and Wallace waved his arms around happily, but suddenly I noticed that Tilly wasn't joining in. In point of fact, all the colour had drained from her face. What's the matter, love? I said. Does it say Charlie's to be Prime Minister? "'Prime Minister of Mirth, you mean?' Freddy chipped in. "'That, you may recall, was the bill matter of the great George Roby. "'He might as well. He's stolen all Roby's clothes,' Stan muttered sourly. "'Mine, you mean?' I cut back. "'They're the stowaways togs, which you borrowed from Roby. "'Well, that's as may be.' Tilly was not joining in this bit of levity. She was still staring at a page of variety, with something approaching horror. "'Good Lord, Tilly, whatever have you found?' I said, reaching over and putting a consoling hand on her knee. She showed me the paper then, pointing at a small item in a column chirpily entitled Brit Titbits. Her finger, I noticed, was trembling. "'That's the way to do it!' was what I read, and then in smaller print beneath. "'Britannia Pier at Great Yarmouth, England, burned to the ground last weekend.' "'Burned to the ground?' I said jovially, thinking perhaps this was what I was meant to notice. "'It's in the sea, isn't it? How did that happen?' Tilly indicated with a chilly flick of her blonde curls that I should read on. Local Punch and Judy man Gordon Beckett is in prison, hospital, suspected of involvement in the conflagration. He is not expected to stand trial, I read. Then, like a slap across the face, it hit me. Good gracious! Is that? Tilly nodded bleakly. It's Dad. <laughs> Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.